0: Great, everybody, welcome to episode number 161 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, November the 19th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank Andy Friedman for joining us on Sports Cards Live, what was now two weeks ago. I also want to thank Adam Gray and Karn Rye for joining uh, two nights ago for the PWCC Premier Auction Watch Party. We had record viewership, that was awesome. Thanks everybody who joined us. Later tonight, we will have an episode of After Hours. My my expo show partner, Sam Genova, will be joining us. We'll be talking about the expo, doing some Q&A and showing off our pickups, why we picked them up, why we love these cards and so forth. Tomorrow on Collectible Live, our guest will be Brett Charville of Standard Gaming. We'll be going live 7 p.m. Eastern on the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel. And next Saturday, our guest on this show on Sports Cards Live is none other than Chris Sewell baseball card collector, investor, dealer in that order. He will be coming back for the second time on the show. It's been over a year since he's come on. All right, I'd like to shout out the Center Stage app. Download the app in the App Store for quick comps, whether you're pricing cards for sale at a card show or shopping yourself. The app is continuously improving, so please join me in supporting the great team that they have over there and the innovation that they are undertaking. Also, shout out Leighton Sheldon with Just Collect. He'll be joining us shortly this evening for the Vintage Update segment. Also want to thank everybody who came by the Tag Grading Booth at the Toronto Expo and submitted cards. Appreciate everyone who's willing to give us a try. And uh, we're grateful for that. Also want to thank everybody who came out to Jack Astor's the Thursday before Sport Card Expo. We had record attendance there. 75 or so people came out. We had a great time. Look forward to doing that again in the at the spring show for the Toronto Expo. Again, thanking all of our loyal viewers, podcast listeners, if you're not yet subscribed to the channel, please take a moment and do so. Greatly appreciate that. And as always tonight, your comments, your questions are in play. So don't be shy. Feel free to pop them into the chat. We'll get to as many as we can. Let's get to it for tonight tonight's guest started working in sports card stores in 1991 his favorite products were 89 upper deck 90 leaf and 91 stadium club if you're like me and you lived in that area era you know exactly what that feeling was like oh gosh great memories in 2011 he co-founded a toy store in vegas which led to his work on pawn stars on the history channel in 2014 in 2021 he started working at game day sports cards in las vegas his favorite teams are the San Diego Padres, the Chargers, the Vegas Golden Knights, and his favorite athletes are Tony Gwynn, Dan Marino, LaDainian Tomlinson, and Eric Lindros. Originally from San Diego and currently hailing in Las Vegas, let's bring them out. Steve Johnston, welcome to Sports Cards Live, pal. How are you? Very
1: good, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on, and uh, what an intro. Thank you.
0: <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Hey, we you know, <laughs> let's get some hype happening here. You know, we we met, uh, oh my gosh, I guess we may. I don't even know when I first met you. Was it Burbank? Was it Del Mar? But whenever it was, uh, I knew you'd be a great guest. You've got a lot of insight, a lot of experience, history in this hobby. And uh, and then when we actually got to planning and getting to some in depth discussion, I realized that wow, you know, this is going to be a good episode. People, uh, people are going to want to watch this and maybe pick up a few nuggets from you. So Let's let's jump right in and set the context for kind of, you know, why and how you have this experience, these insights, this knowledge. Tell us a bit about your hobby history from
1: from the beginning and take us through till till maybe joining game day. Well, I have to tell you, first off, I became a collector because of my mom. Uh, So I was a yard sailor when I was a kid. Um, I understood that I could sell my toys and go buy other toys. Um, And that kind of spurred me into the interest of collecting. And uh, I got into sports cards. And when I got into sports cards, I quickly was like, how can I work this out? So I went to work in a sports card shop. It was actually La Mesa Sports Cards in La Mesa, California. Used to ride my bike about two miles each way uh, every day. And I worked on trade. And so I would trade for what I thought were the best products in the store. Um, And I quickly could amass, you know, big cards like Griffey rookies and Frank Thomas rookies and uh, Chipper Jones and and at the time, Phil Plantier, which was a a Padres thing. Um, (laughs) And uh, I I really kind of took off and I had my hustles. Um, so I put on you know Monopoly nights at the store, uh, home run derbies, things that I could always beat everybody in. So that way, like I could take <laughs> advantage of it, oh, and uh, I did that. And then from there, um, I started to get into Hot Wheels, into diecast cars. Um, I really kind of had an uh, affection for cars as well. I had a '78 Chevy Nova was my first car. And so um, I was really interested in that. And I found that that was a very lucrative world for me. I could buy multiples upon multiples of those cars and resell them to people. And so I started doing that. And then um, that what became a uh, passion project and my interest turned into more of a business. Um, when I moved to Vegas in 2004, um, I brought my collection with me. And I met some people that I started hunting toys for. And when I started hunting toys for them, I was doing it on the side. It was no big deal. But in 2006, I got talked into selling two items I thought I'd never sell, which was a mint unopened sealed in the box Optimus Prime and a mint unopened sealed in the box uh, Megatron. And it was right after grading had uh, started at uh, AFA, which started in, in 2005. And I kept having the same collector ask me for these pieces, ask me for these pieces. And finally, I said, look, I said, Told myself, I'm going to sell these items, everything's for sale. And then that's what happened. Um, and there we were. And so I, uh, I sold those items and I fell into becoming a toy dealer. And uh, uh, from there, it snowballed, opened a store, then uh, made my relationship with Pawn Stars And then uh, unfortunately due to a divorce, um, I left the business a year and a half, two years ago, and uh, a year and a half ago. And um, I came on with game day. And I think I found a great spot for me to land. I kind of get to come back full circle, um, come back to my sports card roots. And um, when I met Jimmy and his team over at game day, what I really liked is that they were very community oriented. They had a really, really fun like vision for the future. They really wanted to like engage the hobby space and uh, yeah, kind of became a good spot for me to land. So oh,
0: right on. Well, we'll get into some Pawn Stars talk. We'll get into what's going on at game day. And just so everyone understands game day sports cards is a LC, It's an LCS. It's in Las Vegas.
1: How, how old is the shop? How long has Jimmy had that shop for now? So the shop's been open about a year and a half. Uh, we're located in Henderson across from the Raiders practice facility. Uh, Jimmy was kind of foreshadowing when he built the store, he put it in a, you know, a little bit more of a building area, uh, where it wasn't necessarily a thoroughfare and it's starting to become that, um, the area is budding and building. And so that was kind of his game plan. And then at the same time, Jimmy actually came in 2016, he started doing breaks, um, and came from that side of the world. So he was one of the bigger, You know breakers on the platforms like facebook and had his own group and everything and so uh kind of brought that in and that's actually how i met jimmy was i got involved with his breaks Um, being a sports card collector i got involved with some breaks and he and i started talking business and from there that's how our relationship started
0: okay right on. so it sounds to me just from your history you spoke a lot more about toys than cards what, uh, What? like, are you a lifelong card collector or more of just a
1: lifelong collector? Can you sort of just set that context for me? Well, so I had a couple different periods of times where I had sell-offs, right? Um, I don't think this happens with all collectors. I think the type of collector I am, I'm a little bit more of an investment collector. I think there's different tiers of collectors. And as an investment collector, you look for opportunities in the market. I just did a mass sell-off again. Um, of a lot of my personal sports cards. I sold 90% of my big cards in the last like six months because I was foreshadowing this fall in the market and didn't want to be left behind with it. And I didn't have anything I couldn't replace in two years if I wanted to go back and rebuy it. So, uh, you know, I made those moves um, and I've done that throughout time and and that happened with sports cards. So I really have always loved sports. I played sports. I played baseball. It was very very, you know, involved with sports cards. But I probably fell off from sports cards in about probably about 2004, 2005 to about 2010. I kind of took off this period of time where I really wasn't buying anything. I had stuff set aside, stuff put away. Um and uh, then I kind of got back into it, and I really got heavy back in fourteen. Um, and in two thousand fourteen, I was buying. I mean, I, you know, shout out to uh, Legacy Sports Cards. I, I probably you know, kept them in business with the amount of contenders product that I bought in 2014. Uh, but I started buying cards again in 14, 15, 16, real heavy. Um, I probably should have went one more year and gotten into the Mahomes rookie year and, uh, uh, didn't get as heavy there, but I was, I was really like doing that. I was amassing stuff, setting it to the side, putting it to the side. And then, uh, uh, again, another bit of a sell-off, um, you know, when there was a, a, a slight uptick in the market, I saw an opportunity to sell a bunch of stuff I had. So I, I unfortunately i am the I'm the collector that kind of chases the parked car and I get it. And once I get it, I don't know what to do with it. So then I sell it and I start again.
0: So you mentioned that you took a bit of a break there from 04 to 2010. And I think it's that's interesting because I think a lot of collectors do that. I've often said that I sort of slowed down from about 95 to 2000 after being you know, gung ho from like, as a kid in 1980 through till now. And I, you know, I highlight that just because I think that we want to, I want to send the message. It's okay to take a break every so often, whether you're taking a break for a a day from social media. It's funny. Hey, Steve, because now, you know, a two, a two day break from the hobby being social media might feel like a, what was a one year break before you're probably missing as much content in two days now as, as you did in, in, in a year back then, actually. But I think it's important to, to kind of underscore that it's, it's, it's okay to take a break from the hobby if, uh, if you feel that you need that. Um, so I just wanted to hi- highlight that point right there. Um, you also mentioned tiers of collectors. You called yourself an investment collector. And I often put my hands up like this. I say, you've got investors here, you've got collectors here, and we all fall somewhere in between. I'll say there's no extremes on either end, although there, there might be some you know real outliers that are. But when you talk about a tier of collector... Can you just expand upon kind of what you mean by that, uh, just to see if it's consistent with what I'm thinking, and per- or perhaps you'll throw out an idea, a concept that I haven't contemplated and maybe I'll work it in and make it one of my theories.
1: Well, I look at it um, collectors. So I actually, I wanna write a book. I wanna write a book about the collector's mentality, but I believe that there's the investment collector, which purely looks at everything they purchase as an investment, looks at opportunities to sell it. They're more like a day trader in stocks, right? Um, there's the value collector, the person that buys it for long-term value, right? But their ultimate goal is to sell it. And then there's the person that, that buys it for the personal collection or a personal collector. And I believe those three different areas are strategically different. And the reason they are is because when you've got, even when you go to the value collector, the guy that like is going to put it away for a long period of time, he doesn't worry about those immediate peaks and valleys in the card. He's always looking for term on it. Um, you know, guys I would use, for example, on that right now are players like Ben Roethlisberger or Tom Brady, guys that you're going to buy into. And until they get their bust in the Hall of Fame, you're not doing anything different with their cards. That's what that collector looks for. Whereas right now in this market is so volatile with what have you done for me lately, right? Mm-hmm. That the investment collector, he's having a tough time right now. Because he's constantly trying to move through everything. You know, he's constantly trying to move through product and make the most value out of it. And a lot of our influencers are actually these guys. They're the investment collectors. And that's the portion of the market I think most of the people try to fall into. But I don't think they realize who they really are until you actually take a step back and really look at it. See, I know I'm an investment collector. I don't have a PC everything is available for sale. I will sell it. I may not want to, I may have a piece that I really like, I may have something that I really like, but there's nothing that I've ever said at this point. Once I sold those toys, everything became for sale.
0: Yeah. Interesting. That's a, that's a great way to break it down. Actually. When you, when you said, you know, the, the, the that the hobby, a lot of the hobbies about what have you done for me lately right now? I snickered. Leighton Sheldon's joined us in the back room. I can see he snickered at the same yeah. time when you said that. I think we all recognize that that is the case. We're going to bring Leighton out in just a couple of minutes. Uh, we haven't gone to comments yet, said hello to everybody. I want to do that. I'm going to start at the bottom here. Uh, Chris C says, I'm a collector. I buy and hold most everything, goats, sealed wax, mm-hmm. and I look long-term always. That's pretty close to to my approach right there uh contender welcome says Steve please write a book the hobby needs it and hey while I'm here I'll say to you Steve oh, if you need somebody write to write the, the forward I'd love to be involved because I, uh, I, I think I think I'm with I'm with contender we need it I'll and even if I'm not involved I'll still read the book of course of course <laughs> uh we did that one there sorry about that um no we didn't Chris says I took a break a 15-year break from o2. Through, although I had other things to deal with, but with more more than made up for it in the last six years. Yeah, it's been easy to make up for it in the last six years. That's for sure. uh Back to the top, though. We got Chris C in the house. We got Lashwine. What's going on? Joe Rab says it was another great Toronto Expo. It really was. Lashwine loves Chris Sewell again. He will be our guest next Saturday on the show. We got the Currency Project in the house. What's going on, fellas? Chris C says, "Are there any affordable '90s or 2000s hockey rookies you like, Jeremy? I don't have much hockey, but I'm curious to ask you about that era. Great to hear, Chris Sewell will be back on, and yeah, there are there there are there are all the rookies from the '90s in hockey. I think are, are pretty affordable, uh, Chris. Let's save that for after hours and definitely talk about it later on tonight. Jeff McMahon in the house. Yeah, I had I had a killer expo again. We're going to do after hours tonight after this show. It's going to be all about." the ball tell all the stories albert jones what's going on diamond pocklington's back in the house good to see you again chris says i just found cards and a bases loaded baseball console game at walgreens and the memories of playing that game growing up no doubt perk in the house what's going on mark santucci toronto was awesome if you guys aren't gonna be able to stay up late enough to watch after hours after this show you can always watch it uh, on the channel later on Speaking of after hours, that's Sam. He'll be joining me on the show. He was at my booth all weekend in Toronto, and uh, we spent some some great times together. Daniel in the house, Frank Estella, and Mark Santucci. just grabbed a Derek Jeter rookie 98 nameplate for 15 bucks in the New York area. Congratulations. And okay. So uh, Colin Murray says everything is for sale, and I know he's, he, uh, he had a serious booth at Expo. And Perk says nothing wrong with taking breaks a day, a week, a month, whatever you need. Whatever a break means to you, that last sentence is what I think is the important one. Whatever works yep. for you. We, that's the nice thing about this hobby, Steve. We don't have to answer to anybody except ourselves. Maybe our wives, maybe our husbands, maybe that kind of thing. But otherwise, we don't have to answer for anyone. To, we don't have to answer to anyone as for why we collect what we collect or why we like what we like. Gross Bros, huge fan. Expo is huge. Yes, it was. Lash Wine says, is it just me or do you find that some pure collectors tend to frown on investment collectors? curious what your thoughts are on that. Let's hang on to that question. We'll do that after the vintage update segment and junk wax museum. Welcome says SCL best Saturday night show out there. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. Steve,
1: before we bring out Layton, any comments on anything I just ran through before we uh, we do that? I mean, I'll definitely touch base on the collectors like mindset on the investment collectors. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And the reason I do is because the general collector looks at that as someone who drives the market value up on their PC items. It's always when it touches their PC. When it's someone else's PC, they're not too worried about it, unless they have it and can trade it for theirs. See, and that's the that's the catch twenty two with the collect the the you know the personal collector is so that that guy utilizes that opportunity to turn that into cards for himself, utilizing the investor collector's you know mentality. And um, that's it's an interesting take because uh, I know that uh, when I first started, it wasn't so heavy where you would be buying to like facilitate your collection. And now everybody does it. All three of those collectors buy to trade and or sell to facilitate what their game plan is to their collection.
0: Yeah, well, no, that's, that's, that's well said. And it explains why I started setting up a card shows. It's, you know, if you can <laughs> make a few bucks on a card, put it into your, to your PC, finance the PC pickups was what I how I used to, to put it. All right, let's bring on Layton Sheldon from Just Collect. We're now doing a weekly vintage update. Layton is a vintage expert out there. He's active in the community, active in the hobby, and just an all around great guy. Leighton, there he is. Welcome back. How are you doing? I can't wait to hear what you want to talk about tonight, but uh,
1: what what do you have to open up with?
2: Well, first off, gentlemen, thanks for having me. Steve, uh, it's great to meet you. Uh, How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Leighton, and uh, legend in the hobby, it's always nice to share the same space with someone like that.
2: Well, I appreciate the kind words. Um, I wanted to make a comment briefly about, uh, I was listening, I found it fascinating you talking about different collectors And I think you could probably add into that maybe like a fourth category of which my guess is most of us will never be a part of. And it's the category where I don't give an F, meaning I have so much money, right? Like a Jim Irsay, like a Ken Kendrick, where they legitimately could probably fit all of those different categories at some point in their life, meaning A, B, and C. But the reality of it is they're a D because they're fully in acquisition mode. They're probably so busy business-wise, they're actually having someone facilitate their bidding, getting catalogs, letting them know an auction start and end. Um, And so I think the point is, you were talking about how the the, uh, collector, um, you know, uh, mentality is someone who, even when they have to finance their own PC, they're looking at the card show, the way you started, Jeremy, And I think that's kind of the point is that that's what everything has. That's what every collector has in common. No matter where you stand, you basically want that kind of D collector type of money, meaning Jim Irsay, Frank Hendrick, et cetera. But the reality of it is none of us get there. So we're all finding a means to an end in terms of finance. Call it the hobby, call it your habit, call it anything in between. Um, But I just thought that was really interesting the way that you laid out uh, the different groups of folks that are out there, you know, buying for investment, collection, PC, et cetera. Well,
1: that collector is always gonna fall into a realm of one of those three. However, there's a lot more categories. Like for example, I mentioned uh, the uh, uh, what I call the hound dog. Right, The hound dog chases it down until they have it. Once they have it, then they have to sell it because they don't know what to do with it. They gotta get something new. Um, the collector you're talking about, I call the Hail Mary. So the guy that can always snap the ball and throw the Hail Mary and whether it gets intercepted or it's touchdown, it doesn't matter because it doesn't hurt his pocketbook. He can move on to the next thing and it doesn't matter. So. There's subcategories to every single one of those. It's finding what area of the hobby space you fit into to be able to understand. I actually think it's important for collectors to understand this because if they do, they're going to be a lot more conscious of actually where they should be in the in the collector space and not bouncing all around because the guys that bounce all around those are the guys that turn around six weeks later and come in and say i spent too much money i don't know what i was doing i you know whatever it is and i hate to see that be the case my my goal ultimately in hobby is if we can educate people and help them you know be better in the hobby space let's do it
2: absolutely i build up the confidence they'll be here for the longest day totally agree
0: well said fellas well i love this interaction I'm, i'm sitting here like just soaking it all up uh so if I'm sitting here soaking it all up, I'm sure the audience is benefiting greatly from both your knowledge and experience. So, Leighton, that's part of what we're doing here with this Vintage Update segment now on Sports Cards Live. Uh, and it's fun for me because I don't necessarily know what you're going to talk about. It, it's fun that way, but you do, you're always going to come with a story or a lesson or something like that. So I'm going to open the floor to you, and uh, I'm excited to hear what it is that you want to talk about tonight.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great way to do it, Jeremy. Uh, So I appreciate you giving me the chance. Uh, So the first thing I want to touch upon with the few minutes that we have here is I've been bidding actively in auctions the last few days. Like I'm sure many of you that are out there that are watching the show now live and on replay are doing, meaning PWCC, Heritage, Collect, and probably eBay and anything in between. Um, And so the specific part of the market I wanted to comment on as far as vintage was actually vintage unopened. And what I mean by unopened is you know packed, boxes, I guess in some – um, uh, situations, cases, but they're virtually non-existent uh, as far as you know vintage wax goes. Um, and so, you know, the first thing I would say is prices are still very strong. However, the outliers, the the items that if they were in my possession and I would consider auctioning, meaning like you have all the upside of the auction probably not a lot of downside um, as far as unopened, is the rare one of a kind items that maybe you know, a couple of years ago, used to see a lot, um, but now they're only auctioned every several years. Uh, So it seems to me that those kinds of items are still garnering substantial premiums, even though everyone who's kind of in tune to the market knows prices in general right now are down. Um, However, what I've found with Unopened, like I said, is that the market is fairly stable. And the only reason I can say that is I bid on tens of thousands of dollars of wax in the last few days, and I won a few items but nothing to write home about, you know, like a 1979 basketball box, like uh, some 80s wax, you know, a mid-70s football box. But, you know, I was the underbidder on an 87 clear basketball box and a bunch of other basketball that was in collect. And so the point being is that even when, um, you know, the market is down, if you know a particular niche like vintage and open that I have experience in, um, it still can be a situation where finding a bargain can be difficult. So don't get hung up on that. Hey, for example, you love Vintage Unopened? Well, if you also collect photography and cards, maybe if Unopened hasn't gone down the way that you like and the investment opportunity isn't there for you, just take your efforts and and move them elsewhere. Or to be fair, just take your cash and keep it on the sideline. But that was my two cents about Vintage Unopened the last few days. I was personally looking for a discount. I'm just, you know, uh, being transparent, I was hoping for between let's say 15 and 30% off and i didn't really see it you know i found a few items that cracked through the, the fell through the cracks um but in general it seemed like prices were very solid uh and in some cases actually strong
0: so despite the the state of the market right now and a lot of the narrative that we that we read and see out there on social media you're saying that the vintage unopened category is holding pretty strong no discounts available one of the things that that i think i think people understand and they should, especially, you know, you, you have a, you have a store, you have a business called just collect, but you also have vintage breaks. So you buy, you buy this vintage product to do vintage breaks. I'm guessing every time you or anybody else opens up a vintage, an unopened vintage product, again, a pack, a, a box or a case, you are, you are reducing the overall supply and population of that item. And so you would think basic economic supply and demand that should increase the value. So while you say you're looking for a discount, really... It should be going up in price every auction that these that these items keep coming, you know, with again, with the adjustments for the, the general economy, of course. Um, Steve, your thoughts on vintage wax and, uh, you know, do you see a lot of it in, in at game day. Is it something that your customers ask for? Uh, how can you sort of uh, jump in and let us know your thoughts?
1: Well, the first part of it, the, the part of the market that you see a lot is that 90s wax era, unfortunately, the late 80s to 90s. It's just everybody sat on that because they were all forecasting that it was going to be worth millions and everybody kept it sealed. Um, but I, I, I'm on, I'm, I'm where Layton is in the vintage market that I never suspect in a downturn like this, that your real vintage items, it doesn't matter what area you're in, sports cards, coins, comics, toys, it doesn't matter that you always have a little bit more stability in it. That's the thing. Not as much upside a lot of times you don't have the big booms in vintage like you do in other card markets or other, you know, collectible markets, but you have more stability in it. And that's where latency seeing right now is that that market's showing stability in a very volatile time for cards. It's down It's down overall. It really is. It's still probably down in that 30 percentile, 25 percentile, but it didn't take that 60, 65 percent dip that a lot of um, a lot of the card market saw. And the reason it didn't is because there's some there's cards that are just kind of substantiated as the staples of what they're going to be. And those products drive off of those card values and they always kind of stay in the range like 86 flair is always going to be expensive sure it's 30 percent less than what it was at the peak right now 40 percent less but it doesn't take those huge massive drop-offs like it does in the modern market and that's because the modern market is liquid to most people most people are willing to just start getting out of it and put more and more of it in the marketplace quickly you don't find it that way with vintage
0: yeah no for what well said and and agreed uh leighton before you respond to that we have a bunch of comments and questions coming in from the chat one of the one of the discussions that the chat is having right now is what is vintage we know it goes back as far as cards go but where does it end i'm gonna put what i what i for and this is another one when i said earlier no one can tell you what to collect i also think no one should be able to tell you what how you define vintage and it seems like the more the longer you've been into vintage the further back you 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 define vintage to end, Layton probably thinks it ends in 1972, like a lot of people do. I don't know exactly, and I'm just saying that because you're you're so involved. For me, vintage ended when Upper Deck came out and put holograms and changed the paper stock. To me, that's kind of and you know gum went away out of packs for all intents and purposes. I consider for my collection vintage to be anything before 1990. Layton, whats what is uh, what what is your definition of vintage?
2: Well, I'll address vintage cards versus vintage wax because it's two completely different animals, right? You can get vintage cards from the 1910s, like T206s, E90s, uh, you know, OBAC, et cetera. You're not getting any unopened really from the 1910s. Um, and so, as far as vintage cards go on the buying and selling side, meaning it's from an investment side, you know, a dealer side, if you will, um, I really consider it from the 1960s and earlier. However, Uh, Just like you said, Jeremy, I grew up with so much great stuff from the 70s and 80s. It's hard to think that Joe Montana rookie is not vintage. It's just that it's not as old as, let's say, a Mickey Mantle card. Um, And so there's plenty of cards I still hold near and dear in my heart from the 70s and 80s and, you know, that are quite valuable. Um, But for vintage wax, they feel a little bit different. Um, Vintage wax, to me, is really anything from the 1970s and earlier. Whereas in 1970s cards, singles... Singles are a lot easier to come by, but wax, absolutely different animal. Um, and so therefore, if you kind of look at like the 1980s, although there's a lot of junk wax in the late 80s, there's a lot of great stuff from the early to mid 80s. And I'm not even talking super expensive, like a three box, 83 tops baseball rack case. That's not super expensive. But yet there's people who are actively buying that now and they're not looking to ever sell it or they're going to sell it in 10, 20 or 30 years from today. Um, and so I think the 1980s right now, if anything, is very interesting uh, as far as vintage wax goes.
0: Yeah. Okay, final question for you, uh, Layton from the chat. comes from Sasha. He says, what vintage wax was readily available three to five years ago, but much rarer now?
2: Oh, it's very easy for me to, because uh, I'm looking for it right now, um, is, is basically mid-1970s basketball. There used to be a 76 tops tall boy. A 75 basketball and a 74 basketball box in every collect auctions, uh, which has an affiliation with Larry Fritch. every auction they would have a box. And I bought for years. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I have an extra, you know, I have enough. I don't need one from this auction. And lo and behold, they stopped auctioning them. My supply dwindled. And now I'm like, oh, dear, I really need some more vintage 1970s basketball packs.
0: So there you go. It's it's cool that you actually had an answer ready to go for that. So uh, good stuff. And thanks to the, uh, to the question asker who have lost the comment at this moment, but uh, thanks for asking that question. And uh, Layton, uh, great to see you again. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back uh, next Saturday for another, another segment of the vintage update. Thanks, buddy.
2: Thanks everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your families. Take care. See you
0: later. Thanks. All right, Steve. So Let's get back to it. Lots of comments have been coming in. I want, I do want to get to them. There's a lot of great ones. I want, I'm going to navigate through this this debate between what is vintage. And I do see <laughs> there's there's one. I think Mark is saying 48 to 80 is vintage. So for me, I say 48 to 90. But he goes on to say before that is pre-war. And to me, they're kind of like you can use the interchangeable terms, but maybe I need to start to be a little bit more specific and and separate for me pre-war from vintage. I think I'm going to really consider doing that. That makes sense to me as uh, as Mark puts out there right now. So, um, okay, we're going to run through some more comments here, uh, Steve, and then we're going to talk about your work with Pawn Stars. I think that's pretty exciting stuff. So uh, first off, I well, Chrissy says vintage is anything pre-1990. So yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. That, that's where I'm at. We have people saying sorry to each other. I guess we're we're not getting along. We let's we got to be getting along in here, everybody. Let's be getting along. I'm just kidding. I know that we are. Chad Shipper in the house. What's going on? Happy Sports Cards Live. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. Chris says, call it modern vintage. Then the point is 82. Tops Ripken is 40 years old now. Yeah, I think, again, I'm going to go back to what I said before, everybody. I don't know if there's a rule for this. I think that, I don't think we're ever going to have a consensus. I think it's kind of what you want. Contender says, shouldn't vintage be 30 years And older, just like an antique has to be 100 years old by definition, maybe vintage needs a definition. I know a lot of people, Steve, use the wine definition for vintage, which I don't remember what that is, but it might be 30 years or 20 or 15. I'm not sure. So, But that does make sense. Jerry says, I started collecting in 79, so vintage to me will always be the original six hockey and earlier. And that's just it. To me, he says, and I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and that approach for sure. Brendan Ryan says, just look at the chaos in opinions without an updated scale of vintage to modern cars older than 75 years should have an antique, not vintage designation. Yeah, I mean, there's something to that as well. Chrissy, yeah, not everyone shares the same definition. Sanderson to or that's Eric says, I have to, well, of course you got to agree with me, Eric. No, I'm just kidding, buddy. Thank you that anything before 1990 is considered vintage. And again, we can have that in. And- Lashwine, always enjoy Leighton's insight. Yes, great to have him jump on. Steve, anything else about all this that you that came to mind as I've been addressing the comments before we jump into some Pawn Stars talk?
1: Well, it's funny to me because I actually I have a little bit of a different look at this because of how all collectibles are done. The sports card market is really unique. Uh, comic books has a very, very outlined benchmark. You have golden age, bronze age, right? Like it's very, very very laid out and and easy to follow. I think that in the sports card world, uh, maybe there should be a designation put together. That is something that is a little easier to follow something that does offer a vintage modern to a modern, right? Because in general speaking in collectibles, 50 plus years is generally considered antique because a hundred plus years is going to be considered relic, right? So, So you've got 50 plus years and then generally in most collectibles, 20 plus years is considered vintage. It's supposed to be a childhood or a, you know, getting into your adulthood time um, period that that should be. And again, these are all, you know, we're all speculative across. So that's where I say when you're saying 1990, I'm saying, well, maybe that should be vintage modern era. And then before that could be vintage and then you can get an antique relic, but really create these designations. I think it would be helpful for people because I do think there is a little bit of a disconnect there of people of what they think is vintage and what is not. Because if we ask someone who's 25 in the chat, what is vintage? They're going to tell you what they got as a kid compared to what you and I got as a kid compared to maybe what someone who may be, you know, 20, 30 years older than you or I might think. So yeah,
0: yeah it's hard for me to consider a Kobe rookie to be vintage, but it's it's easier for me to consider, you know, a Mark McGuire rookie to be vintage or a Jerry Rice or a Joe Montana or a Michael Jordan Fleer yeah. for that matter. All right, couple more comments here. James says most antique dealers consider an item to be vintage if it is at least 40 years old. I think you just said 20 or 30. So there's some consistency there. And, and based on what you were just said on what you were just saying I think what we're talking about is like just a standardization so that everyone can have the same reference. There's no confusion, no misunderstandings. Sasha says the definition of vintage has always been evolving, but hard to see upper deck and that new cardstock with holograms becoming vintage. I sort of not, not yet anyway, but uh, so 40s to 90 might be the final range. I mean, I would vote for that. But I think, again, in 20 years, 1990s will, will be vintage as well. Brendan Ryan says, would be nice to see Steve get a sports card show on the History Channel. <laughs> hey, I guess if anyone could do it, it might be you, Steve, considering you already have relationships at the History Channel, which we're going to talk to you, talk about right away. Pocklington says, pre-serial numbered cards are vintage to me personally. I'm an 80s baby, so what I grew up with is vintage. Yeah, that makes sense. And we have Chris agreeing. And I think we, we, we kind of do agree on that. Let's talk about Pawn Stars, man, because it's pretty cool. You're actually the second... Pawn Stars expert I've had on Sports Cards Live. The first was one of my earliest guests, Steve Grad. He comes in and opines on the authenticity of autographs. And what Steve will do on the show that I know the uh, the beard of knowledge doesn't do this. Rebecca, the old book expert, would never. do. I don't know if she would do it, too. But Steve will actually not only opine on the authenticity of the autograph, but he will also opine on the value of the item for Rick and the pawn shop, the pawn star guys to decide, you know, do they want to buy it at the asking price? So again, you're the second guy coming on. I'm gonna start with that question. When you when you do your appearances on pawn stars on the history channel, do you opine on the on the value of
1: the item versus just the or, or just the authenticity? So I do both. Um, and I really focus on toys and pop culture memorabilia. So that's really the strengths of my background. And the sports cards is obviously a strength of mine. However, when I came on, they had an expert, then they changed. And for TV purposes, it's not great to have the same expert doing multiple you know, genres of items. It's better to have a, an individualized person for each one. And, um, and, and I do appreciate that they do that. Um, with that said, I really focus on the historical aspect when I come onto the show. To me, the most important element of the entire thing is what information I can provide you on that item to give you some type of historical relevance, some type of information about it, or what um, what really might genuinely be something unique to the item. And that's whether it's something that is just 20 years old or something that's hundreds of years old. Um, And so I really look at that, but we do have to assess the value. And the simplicity for me of that is, is that that is Rick's money. And I need to make sure that when he's buying an item that I don't steer him to overpay for something. Um, And I can't say that that never happened on the show before. And I can't say that, you know, it doesn't look like that happened with myself uh, because the magic of TV is sometimes you film something, but it doesn't come out for a year and a half. So when you see it the first time, You know, it actually may have market may have changed tremendously. But on TV at the time when we did it, I kind of wish they would like put some timestamps with it. Like this episode is from the, you know, so you could reference it back. But Uh, with that said, I think it's very important for me to focus on the fact that, you know, whatever the actual market value of something is to make sure that I'm giving a fair and good assessment, something that I'm there for the buyer too. Don't get me wrong. Like a lot of people, I think, um, they have that opinion of like, we come in to help Rick and them like get a deal. And that's not it at all. We come in and we want to make sure that we're giving the best information about the item because it's not just about what it's worth. It's not just about what the item is. Is the, is the item sellable? Is there a market for it? What is the market for it? How hard is it going to be able to sell? What are the channels we're going to suggest that they are going to need to sell it on? Because that all factors into what the cost of doing business is. When you own a business license, building, lights, employees, that cost of doing business is factored into every single thing you purchase.
0: I guess, you know, if you were to go on the show and provide your opinions and they were skewed towards favoring Rick and, and the, the gold and silver pawn shop, I mean, the public would catch on pretty quick because, you know, he, there's several experts out there in the fields there that are watching as well and kind of, you know, marking in their brains. You know, what did what did he what was his opinion about? Now, you could have there could be other people who think that there's the value is different, but they may still respect your opinion. And there might be other people out there who say, well, he's just full of crap. There's no way it's worth that. And that's when you
1: would be kind of busted. Now, that would not end well, would it? Well, no, and, and, and we see that. Um, so the first thing I'll tell you is that someone who collects something is generally more of an expert about it than I am. See, they, they apply the expert tag, not me. Um, I come in to provide a marketplace relevancy to the items. Is it something that can be sold? Is it something that's worth for them to invest into? Is it something that will bring excitement? And also, does it have a marketing element for the shop? Because there's an element to that. And you're right. When we come in and we make an assessment, someone may have a difference of opinion. I see it often. It's the guy that's been in the business forever, that that's all he does and buy and sells that one item. And then all he thinks about is just the walls that that item spaces in. And when he does that, he doesn't realize that new people being brought into the collector community, how they react differently because they're in a different time, let's say younger collectors in the sports card hobby, how they buy and sell and trade. Um, you know, these things are all very important to factor in when you're talking about what the the actual ability to sell the item is. And then the point to touch on and I'll use this example because this is a really fresh example. I evaluated a Funko Pop stan lee that was a comic con exclusive was a metallic version that they did it was a custom paint exclusive item that they did and i get knocked for this a lot um i still see comments i saw a comment as fresh as today in regards to this item somewhere where someone's like i think that guy's full you know whatever he's just trying to be a scammer even though i told them not to buy it but nevertheless um and the reason being is because their opinion on that specific item is that it falls in line as follows now there's information that i have or things that i've uncovered and some of it doesn't even make tv and when that happens a lot of times it's not out there and like for that exact episode what's funny is i knocked the paint quality now someone's like well funko never worries about the paint quality well we all say panini doesn't care about the quality of their cars come offline. Everybody has this opinion when it talks about manufacturers, right? But my point on that was, is that they wouldn't have let this one go from the episode. You wouldn't have been able to tell how crude the paint was, how poorly it was done. And what most people don't know is that ap- after the episode, I was even able to get the uh, seller to let me open the item, open the box and actually review it and go around and show. And we could see where there were like major issues on it that did not match up to the other ones that were in the marketplace. But again, people get that opinion. And so in that world right now, there's kind of a, I don't want to call it a witch hunt, but there's a little bit of the Funko collector is like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And that happens because of the fact that the platform we're on and how it's presented to you, whether it's presented a year and a half after we filmed it, or it's presented from a standpoint that not all the information's provided, it can happen and be seen that way just because of that.
0: Yeah, well, well, it's funny. You say witch hunt, and right away I think, well, there's the hobby's no stranger to witch hunt, witch hunt <laughs> either. So it's nice to see there's consistency among different uh, genres of collecting. How many
1: appearances have you had now on Pawn Stars? So it's the 75 plus range. I don't have an exact count on it, it's been over 75, 80 episodes. Um, And we just filmed a new season of a new edition of the show, which is Pawn Stars Hits the Road. It's airing now. Um, The guys actually went out and did buying events in different cities. And then they would call different experts out to the cities based on what people were bringing out to these events, um, which was really fun. And it's a it's a it's a fun take because you got to get them to come to your marketplace for, you know, three, four days, host a buying event. Uh meet everybody, they got on the road. It was really great for the, the the crew. You know, they we always forget about you know when they travel. If if the three if the three of them travel, speaking of Rick, Corey, and Chum, if they travel, there's 14 other people going with them.
2: Right. Camera, oh. they, yeah. yeah,
0: the whole production <laughs> crew. So let's talk about those those guys now. I mean, Pawn Star, and I've been watching Pawn Star since it started. Uh, you know, found it to be a very interesting show, it's entertaining. You've got Rick the the main owner of the shop, you the old man who's since passed away, his father, his son Corey, and then his son Corey's buddy Chum. So that there's three of them still living. You got to know the old man a bit. What are these guys like to work with? Did you have you? And this is you know the what you don't know by watching the show. Have you become friends with these guys? Were you were you sad when the old man, as they called him, passed away? Did you go to his funeral? Are you pals with Rick? Did you go to his wedding? Or do you chum around with Chum Lee and Corey tell us a bit about the the dynamics sort of away from the the screen that we get
1: to see well it's always funny because they always say let me call my friend right that's I got a friend let me call him um, so the way I got involved because I think that's important to say is that we had a mutual customer who had been for years telling them that they should be using me um, And ultimately that information got passed on. They made some wholesale changes. There was quite a few expert changes during the season that I came on. And in fact, you mentioned Steve Grad. Uh, In the interim between changes in the toy expert and pop culture expert, and me coming in steve grad evaluated a prop collection of star wars like screen news star wars stuff that he actually did the evaluation for um so it's kind of funny because I, I jokingly say no 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 there's three toy experts because steve grad was the second um but uh working with the guys is really unique and and when they brought me in um it was from that standpoint so it really was a professional relationship right and i came in and got involved from that standpoint when I got involved with them, I think I really took to Chum. Um, he's really into sports betting. I uh, kind of—he's a little younger than I am, but still has a lot of the same interests and focuses. Um, when we talk about nerdy stuff as well as sports, uh, Rick being the smartest guy I've ever met before. When and then when you're talking about someone who knows their stuff and the lane they're in, I mean Rebecca Romney is the best expert on the show, and no one can change my mind. She is, and I—I—I I, I believe that a hundred. He doesn't need her. He's the book expert. (laughs) He really doesn't. He knows his stuff. He also knows his pre-war and his American history. So it's amazing to just sit and listen to him talk and, and, and to be. So when I'm around Rick, I find opportunities to really talk to him about Either those things or um, he's also really heavy into politics, but I don't I don't talk politics on these platforms. But um, it's it's neat to see his take, how he views things, how he sees things, and then obviously how he was. As far as the old man goes, I came in in a really unique time. The old man had gotten sick, so I actually didn't film with him at all. I came at the end of a season. In fact, my premiere episode was the season finale. And it was a season he had filmed in. But he did not film that episode that I was on. Um, and he had gotten sick and they had kept it quiet. And so when he passed, it was a very quiet thing. Um, and they had kept it that way. And they they wanted to keep it private. And I, I think that they did an incredible job in the the day and time that we're in. Um, and so and uh so I've gotten to know you know, I've gotten to know Rick. I've definitely gotten to know Chum. Chum and I have actually done things together. We, we do some things. We have some stuff down the pipeline um, that you can expect that probably at some card shows. You will be seeing Chum and I making appearances at shows, um, either for buying events or him p- partnering with us at game day and actually being part of our footprint at a show um, because of our relationship. Corey's the outlier for me. Um, Corey... I film with him. I don't really see him much beyond that. Um, I also don't go hang out at the shop often. I don't do those things. So I don't run the time to to be around those guys as much. Um, So, you know, it's purely, purely a professional standpoint, but I've definitely become a lot more friendly with Chum. And uh, you know, he and I have built a a really good rapport and relationship and I'll be honest with you. It shows on, on screen. Our chemistry together is hands, hands down, easily the best of the three that I film with. Although Rick is a consummate professional. And like I said, he really, really gets what he's doing. Um, so that's kind of how it's built with me. So not going to say that I'm friends. I can be the buddy, but what I can tell you is this, is that I respect each one of them for what they do and how they do it. And each one of them has their, their lane, the thing that they do well. And, you know what they've done a great job on that show to keep it rolling
0: yeah no for sure it's i don't know how many seasons it's gone but it's it keeps on going and uh it's pretty it, it's it's a still a good it's still a good show how do how do they feel i don't know if you can answer this or not you know i forget who they use for sports cards now for a while they were using a guy named jeremy who had a shop in las vegas i know they've moved away from him now how do how does the shop feel about sports cards in general is it a is it an an exciting sort of vertical for them or is it like they would rather be doing memorabilia and hollywood music sort of stuff
1: i think the best stuff for tv is hollywood memorabilia uh game used items things to that extent that really kind of like for a television standpoint they're a little more visual right a bat being on the counter is a lot more visual than there being a graded you know Mickey Mantle, right? Um, The historical factor is the ultimate guideline for how they're casting items for the show. So when they're actually deciding if an item is actually going to be on the show, that's really what they're looking at. They're looking at what's the historical factor of it, what's important behind it, why, and is there a historical tie into it. Cause those things matter the most. And I remember um, Daniel Walken, who was um, till recently the sports expert for the show um, with memory lane in California, Daniel did a uh, Babe Ruth bat. Right. Um, and the historical relevance behind that item. And um, there's speculation out there as to what that item was. But what I can tell you is the historical aspect for the show, that's where the value is. So whenever sure they're they looking paid. at that stuff, that's, that's what what inter-
0: Yeah, that's what's really entertaining, right, is when they get into the history side of things. And when the the pawn shop employee, whether it's Rick or whoever, starts to spew that knowledge and talk about the item. And then they start putting those little graphic or text bubbles on the screen to round right. out the, the context. I do enjoy that aspect of it for sure. Sasha says right here, isn't the most watched Pawn Stars episode when Gary the Pokemon King brought in all his Charizards and they passed on the deal? It's now worth 10 times what he was asking for it. What can you tell us about that episode? I know you and I did touch on it earlier. So um, you have something to say about that. Yeah. Round out some context on, on
1: that uh, the Pokemon episode, which I did manage to see myself. Yeah. So it is the most watched episode. It's got multiple streaming platforms that have over 15 to 20 million views a piece on it. (laughs) Um, So, and I was lucky enough to be involved with that one. Uh, Uh, Give you some context on that. When Gary came in, Gary was that expert. He was that guy I told you about, right? He is the guy that knew everything about this stuff. Uh, He had a pretty good understanding of value, but Gary was more of one of those guys that he didn't understand like market trends. He just knew that he bought it it had value today. He really liked it, which is what's made him likable. That's what's made him the Pokemon King, right? And that episode is ultimately what kicked it off for him. Um, That episode was really unique and I love talking about it because I think it's important from our standpoint in the hobby to understand this, that sometimes what we believe or what we think after the fact should have happened, you have to understand a lot of things, right? And the first thing was is that During the episode, not everything that was evaluated was shown. There was more than what was there. In fact, there was two stacks, probably about 50 to 70 each of ungraded raw shadowless Charizards. Right. So there was already like these two massive stacks, the stuff that he didn't grade. Right. Then you had the stack of PSA 10s, which was represented 20% of the market. I don't care what business you're in. If you own 20% of the market share of something, you can change the the complexity of the market by how you activate that, whether you sell it, hold it, keep, whatever, right? Um, And that was a very important part of this episode because everybody's going, well, Rick should have made an offer because Rick didn't make an offer on it. Rick didn't want to buy it. Sometimes you got to be good at what you're good at. And Rick understood that this was something that probably was a little over the shop's head and that they were going to have to lean on people like myself or even other sharps in that industry that even were stronger in the Pokemon market than I am, right? Um, And to, to get involved with that. And then two, when you own a market share like that, you have to plan how you sell it if you're selling it. You can't just go dump a, put an auction up. Of 10, you know, PSA 10 Charizards, let's let the first one go. That'll never work. You'll water the market down and and it'll cannibalize itself. So it had to move through the marketplace on a more peer to peer level. And that's time. And time is money. So when we look at that episode and we say, oh, well, they could have bought it and 10X their money at the peak of the market. Well, first off they had to foreshadow that the market was going to 10x and i can tell you on the day that we filmed that there's not a person in that building in the building next to me or across the country that thought the market was going to boom like it did there's nobody that forecasted it to be that big of a boom they may have saw it upticking that's kind of what happens with especially those 90s properties and that's one of them they kind of cycle back and then they go away and they cycle back but It was a really unique position for them because they could not be so invested into that and then risk that they were going to have to sell it over a two-year period. That's just, it was too much time. I don't care how much money it was. It was too much time to try to sell that out to really maximize their profit. At the end of the day, they have to do that. They have lights, employees. Of course,
0: of course no great 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 stuff fun information nice to know a little bit about sort of behind the scenes colin murray was in the shop last year didn't see any sports cards and i haven't been in there for a couple years but i don't know that i've ever seen a sports card in my three or four visits to the show sasha says here rick is an expert in so many subjects but as long as he doesn't do sports cards the shop will never specialize in sports cards and I think that's fair. It's not a sports card shop. It, it's a pawn shop. They're supposed to do a bit of everything, right? And, and, and they, for the most part, they do touch on most things. Uh, Brendan Ryan says uh, that a lot of action-packed redemption autos, basketball cards that never got to circulation, that was a nifty episode. I don't remember that one myself, but very cool. Good to know that they did that. He also says here, didn't Rick say that modern sports cards are not worth the paper they are printed on? I mean, if he said that, he was, he was, wrong is yet as that that black as a blanket statement it doesn't apply but as a general statement maybe 98 percent of the modern cards made are not worth the paper they're printed on but there are certainly uh the outliers from there and Dexflow says right here uh jeremy steve can appreciate my newest purchase an afa 80 optimus prime so we're talking about the transformers here maybe the maybe the, uh, the Honus Wagner of Transformers being the Optimus Prime, right? What do you think of this purchase that Dexflow recently
1: made? It's definitely one of the staples in the marketplace when you're talking about Transformers. Um, that was actually one of the items that I sold was a sealed Optimus Prime. And the whole idea behind it was I got one and a half times what it was selling in the market at the time because the guy wanted it so bad because he went and graded it. It was one of the first ones to grade an 8.5. Um, in the toy world, an 80 is kind of like that high mark, and 85 is like that's the, the benchmark you're shooting for. That's the BGS 95 number. That's the PSA 10 number, right? Because you don't tend toys. T- toys don't go 100. They don't. Um, and so an eight, five in the vintage toy market is very strong. 80 is very, very good. So that's an incredible purchase. That's something that definitely is one of those, in my opinion, that's a value collector move where you grab that and you hold it. Um, but the marketplace right now is in, a, in a, a great time to buy, right? This is a, a very liquid market. If you're a liquid, you should be buying like you never have before. Um, and you can continue to buy for, I believe, at least six more months uh um, maybe 5 more months uh over that okay. period but
0: i was going to save this line of discussion for a little bit later but you've introduced it so why don't we uh why don't we do that now and just talk about cuz i did i did tease in the description that you know you've got some investment strategy some some tips for people uh based on success your some successful experience now i've said a 100 times maybe more I don't offer investment advice. I'll tell you what I'm buying and collecting. It's up to you if you want to. If you ask me what what players I like or what cards I like, I'll tell you. But that's what I like. And uh, and if they don't do well for you, that that's on you. You know, I'm I'm not advising anything. In this case, when you presented me the information the other day, I thought, you know, this is this is information that I don't mind being shared on my channel because I I liked what where you I liked what you were saying in terms of, like it made sense to me that uh, that you weren't just really forecasting you're actually using logic to make some decisions and it wasn't just based on you know who are the hottest players right now it was based more on economic circumstances versus say on field court or ice so with that said you know why don't you expand on that a little bit and talk about you know where we're at in the market right now obviously since the pandemic since really early 2020 the hobby blew up and then it's come back down to earth over the past, I don't know, six to nine months or so. And now we're going to move forward. There's a lot of people asking and wondering when is the bottom of the hot? When is the bottom going to be the new bottom? Is, is it now, is it six months from now? And, uh, and what should we be doing right now? Is it, should we get out now? Should, you know, sell your cards now and maybe buy them back cheaper down the road or hold on or keep buying. So with all that said, can you just sort of, uh, Take us through your mindset, but please give us the historical context that you're using to
1: forecast ahead. Well, first off, I think it's important for people to understand that I started this at a very young age, right? Um, And I use this one specific moment. I share this in Sports Card Hobby often, which was I was an avid reader of Baseball America. And Baseball America and the very back end used to have a little section that was talked, that would always talk about up and coming minor leaguers and stuff that was going on. And in 1991, right, um, you had some rookies that came out um, that they're not as big now, but at the time they were big names. And I mentioned one of them, Phil Plantier, and some of these guys. But the 92 All Star Game was held in San Diego, which is where I grew up. And they do Fan Fest, which is a giant card show and memorabilia show. And um, it's very fun and 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 something that uh uh they need to kind of bring it back to the air it was in the 90s because it was amazing in the 90s. And I remember going around the show and buying every single Mike Musina rookie out of the common boxes. I paid 15 cents a piece, 20 cents a piece for them. I bought every single one of the show, and I remember taking out an a hundred count case completely full of Mike Mussina rookies out of, out of FanFest. And it's six weeks later. Right. And I met, I see the comment that Chris has about Todd Van Poppel while everyone else was buying him. I was off buying Mussina and it was because they were talking about how he was going through the farm system and there was things and they were talking about specific things that I thought as a kid sounded longevity, sounded like he'd have longevity. Well, he gets brought up, he goes off. He, I think he goes eight and one or something like that over his you know first nine appearances, 10 appearances. He won a, just a gross amount of games. And everybody started talking about him. And at that time, as a kid, I'm 14, 15 years old, and I'm turning around and selling these cards for $15 a piece to dealers, hmm. right? So I started then. I think it's important to share that because I've always kind of really like looked for opportunities in the market and that's how I advise when I talk investment. So every single Monday on our podcast the Game Day Huddle, we have a little little segment, not long, where I'll talk about investment whether it's a buy, sell or hold concept, right? What you should be doing in the marketplace. And throughout the last year of doing that, Um, there's been some major home runs hit. There's been a lot of sustainability and there's been things that can happen and it's stuff that can happen in almost any market. People don't realize that this stuff can be applied towards almost any market when it comes to the world of collectibles. Just the sports card world has real world time and information, things that happen. Joe Mixon scores five touchdowns. People want Joe Mixon rookies. These things happen, right? So if you can forecast some of this stuff, you can see some of these things that are happening or some of the things that might be a downturn for it. You can take advantage of it. And one I shared with you um, when we talked before a little bit was in regards to Luka Doncic, right? Everybody had invested so heavy into Luca; They had gotten, I don't want to say they're upside down, but I want to say that they definitely kind of got where they bought real heavy and bought high. And a lot of people didn't know how to get out of it. All they kept saying, I kept hearing this constantly. Someone would come up, they would look to sell a card to our shop or another dealer. And they would say, well, I bought this for X and I can't lose that amount of money. I can't lose that amount of money. And I kept hearing it said over and over and over again. And it dawned on me that most of these people that were buying in the marketplace and buying at that high level didn't know how to correct themselves in the market. And that's with hedging. And the way you hedge an item is, you gotta go out, if you bought 10 big Luca rookies and you bought them at the peak of the market and you're now looking at it and they're down and you're like, dang it, I spent way too much then. Cause that's, we all feel we overpaid even though we paid market value at the time, but that's a whole nother, we can have a whole nother you know, discussion on that. However, in this space, what you can do, and this is what my advice was, is to go in and buy at that lower tier of the market when you see an opportunity. And the opportunity I saw was, I thought the Mavericks were going to make the playoffs last year. I thought that the Mavericks were going to actually make a playoff run. And if they won a series, which they did, I felt that Luka would take a huge advantage of that. So if you bought Luka Those last 10 days, 15 days of the NBA season, which is when I was advising this, go out and buy everything Luca that you already overpaid for, and then come back and buy it again. And then when he wins a playoff series, sell all of it. Because the whole idea is to hedge yourself out, to mid yourself out. So that way you can either break even, or in some cases, some people made some money off of it.
0: So it's kind of like dollar cost averaging your investment down just so that when you do get out, you're going to make you're going to make money on the stuff you bought cheaper, which will then help drive down the cost of the stuff you paid more for earlier on. Yeah, that, exactly. that's a, it's an interesting strategy. Uh, Brendan Ryan throws out, a, 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 I think, an important question on the strategy basically says, do you chalk that up to instinct or
1: analysis? I would definitely say that I spent a lot of time of analysis uh, one example that I can give you. And again, this is all stuff people can go back and fact check me on. So I have no problem saying this stuff. Two weeks before the Mac Jones boom last year, I looked at the Patriots schedule. I saw how people were spending money on the 21 product class and buying boxes of stuff. And I said, they're grasping for someone to take the lead here. And he has an opportunity to do it because he's going to be the biggest story. He's the guy that came in behind Tom Brady. He's the guy, even though there was other people there, he's the new guy that came in behind Tom Brady. He's the guy that they're going to look at. Everybody's going to have comparisons. They're going to discuss that. And so I'm like, if he goes and he wins these next two games, there is going to be a big boom in the market. So that day to me, that was the bottom of his market. So I went out and I said, look, I said, Go in and buy Mac Jones right now, buy Mac Jones like crazy. And there wasn't a ton of stuff out, but the Don Russ rated rookie was out, right? And then the uh, uh, you had the Gold Hollow that came out of the retail product, uh, the 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 retail factory set product that came out. That that was also another card that was on the market. Like there was a few. I was like, buy Mac Jones like crazy, buy as much as you can because you'll never be able to buy it as cheap. Then two weeks later. I came back on our podcast and I'm like, now sell your Mac Jones and do it quickly because you're never going to be able to sell them for cheaper. Now, I was a little wrong with that concept, but my idea was we've already made you money. Don't get greedy, right. right? Find the opportunities in the market, take advantage of it. And that was a really good example where you can do that. And if you forecast, you look ahead, you can see these things. Like if I came on today and said one thing, okay, we just saw that Tyrese Maxey went down with three to four week injury on a uh, fracture in his foot, right? We all know that's six weeks back. That's four weeks back to the court, two weeks back of adjustment, trusting himself, whatever it is. He gets to the playoffs though. All that team's going to talk about is Tyrese Maxey. So now that Maxey's hurt, as much as this is unfortunate, this is the time to buy because everybody's going to be selling off. Now I'd wait a week. Cause there's going to be a lot flooded into the market right now. Let them all lower the prices across the board to each other, buy them at the bottom and then wait for him to get to the playoffs.
0: So let me ask you this. There's the baseball player. I think it was Tatis who was suspended for PEDs, right? Yep. And he's, he's no slouch of a player. He's going to take some time off and come back. What we, what's your thoughts on, on him? Because, because I don't follow baseball today and I thought to myself, well, now's the time to buy Tatis. Everyone's going to offload it because we have a very short, generally the hobby has a short term outlook on things. I have a longer term outlook. So I'm thinking, you know, and I didn't go and do it, but I thought there's probably some people who are a little savvier than most who are probably thinking, well, yeah, maybe now's the time to be buying him. What were your thoughts on that when he was uh, found to be using PEDs and, and received his suspension?
1: Well, first off, I'm a little bit of a homer here. So let's forecast that I'm a Padres fan. So he was definitely one of my guys, right? Um, with that said, Uh, the marketplace looks at these PED violations a little bit differently. Now, if you need any example of that, is that in the world of fantasy, everybody was chomping at the bit. As soon as DeAndre Hopkins came back off the, uh, off the suspension list to be able to play this year, everybody was willing to make a deal for DeAndre Hopkins. Because again, it's about what you've done for me lately in the modern world. And I believe that that's what's happening here. Tatis took such a dip in the market that it's a very, very safe opportunity. You are not going to get yourself leveraged into anything too heavily to not be able to get yourself out of it, if that makes sense. And I have a very simple play for him. When he comes and he hits his 10th home run since he's been back, it'll all be forgotten.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Where was he when we forgot about it? Because that's where I think we'll go. Do I think he'll boom?
0: You just you just got muted somehow, Steve, if you might maybe your mic disconnected somehow. You might need to pop out and pop back into the studio. All right, so we've lost Steve for a second. This did happen. uh, This happened earlier in training, so I somewhat expected this and he'll be back in a minute. We'll wait for him. Uh, Currency Project says dollar cost averaging in cards. I use it myself. Yeah, it's a it's a good way. I think that was a good strategy. Steve
1: outlined. He's back. Let's see. Can we hear you now? I think, I think we got it, got it fixed. And I do apologize. No, no Um, no. So to finish up my, my, my thought on that is just purely simple, which is uh, Tatis is a a good investment. I don't want to say he's safe. There's a little bit of volatility there that's possible. Um, But I do believe that it is an opportunity in the market right now to buy. He's not my number one to buy in baseball right now. Like I'm not advising uh, to buy that. I actually forecast prospects a lot. So I'm more of about the prospect and getting you value when the prospect makes it to the major leagues, which I believe is important. Okay. Um, but he's definitely one you can, you'll be able to make some money on once that, you know, 10 home run plateau happens.
0: Okay. So two comments, the first one, we're going to come back to Tatis in a second, but I want to go to Chris C. Cause you talked about the fact that you like to, you, you look at prospects uh, there's a Cardinals prospect are going to be huge. Some say Jordan Walker, but his autos are ridiculously priced. Can you just take like a couple seconds and address this address Jordan Walker?
1: So Jordan Walker is an incredible player. He's got a couple of things that don't go well for him. One, he's not going to be good in the media. And we we've come to find out that in sports, it's very important for them to be good in the media. Two, he's coming into a team that is losing some superstars, losing Yachty, losing Pulhos. Those guys are kind of taking a little of that allure away from that team. So here come the new, the new guard and the new guys. And right now, the baseball player, like collector, wants to be in the realm of like, you know, I want to see this guy do it. So, Jordan Walker is a very good investment. However, not now. If you bought Jordan Walker eight months ago, that was when you were supposed to buy Jordan Walker. See, I believe that this is all timing is incredibly important. The guy on the Cardinals you should be buying right now is Nolan Gorman. While everyone else is buying up Jordan Walker, you should be buying Nolan Gorman. Because okay. he's the guy that still has tremendous upside and you can get him cheap enough.
0: Okay, there we go. And uh, so Bonkers has a comment here. It says, when a baseball player is connected to PEDs, their card values never hold over time. From Bonds, Maguire, Sosa to A-Rod, these players' cards compared to other players with similar stats aren't close. I think he's right about that. And we were talking about Tatis thinking, you know, 10 homers in, he'll be mostly it'll be mostly forgotten. And I seem to, like, I know what Bonkers is saying. I mean, he's not, He. this is factual, what Bonkers is saying. But something in my head makes me think that it's just a little bit different from what was going on in the 80s and 90s and the way society viewed these people to today. Uh, You know, and again, I don't know what PEDs everyone was using, but I think steroids is a pretty strong word and it has some negative connotation to it. I don't know if Tatis was using steroids or some over-the-counter uh, you know, medication that that caused there to be traces of it in the system. I just don't know. So my question is, is there a difference, Steve, between how the players on this post that we see on our screen right now are, are assessed and judged versus how Tatis will be assessed and
1: judged for his use of PEDs? Well, to me, I think it's incredibly simple, which is the sports writers that were writing then are starting to not be our sports writers now right? Those guys drug those names through the mud. Those guys lied to every single one of those sports writers. They told them stories. They made up things. And every single one of these sports writers went out and put this information out there. This guy's not using. He's clean. He's this. He said that and made them kind of look bad. So when it came to that, they actually did use those guys buried them. They wanted to. And a guy like Bonds, who was very unlikable, those things really really mattered the thing you're running into here is is that the use of PEDs now is not like it was then the advantage to gain now is getting back healthy quicker not to overperform everybody on the on the field nobody is lenny dykstra running it up and just getting absolutely jacked and brady anderson and these guys that we all know that like really just went over the top that's not happening don't get me wrong. Do I think there's – I know there's steroids in baseball. Like I just – I know. And, there, you know, that that's going to be the case for quite some time. Someone's always going to look for a way to beat the system. Sure. But in the case of like a situation with Tatis, I mean, I did my research. I'm a Padres fan. What he used in his hometown, in his home country – actually does contain traces of the drug in which he did test positive for. And what he tested positive for was a very small fraction of it. Do I believe his story? I'd like to. Can I? No, because I've been taught over the years that these guys lie all the time
0: yeah it's the whole like the boy who cried wolf but it but it's transferable between people now it's you know right when one person ruins it ruins it for the other adam holgate says tatis is so young lots of time for people to forgive and forget and i think now it's a lot more likely that that will happen you know compared to if it happened in the year 1999 or 2000 or 2001 which was a lot closer to the the players that were on that list that uh, bonkers put up so okay great stuff good comments from the chat I've still got about five noted that I want to get to we'll see if we have time because we're we're already deep in even <laughs> we haven't even gotten through my uh, my show notes uh, completely so we're gonna we're gonna touch on two more topics for sure um, let's take a moment to talk about game day sports cards and but I want what I want to talk about with game day is what you're because I t- I teased it in the in the in the video description here that you have some great ideas on how to grow the hobby. Uh, using trade nights, and I think that's an important aspect of the hobby. And I'd like you to just share your thoughts on that and uh, what your what your strategy is, and and I guess just tie that into what you bring to game day. Why Jimmy brought you on in the first place, and how it's playing out for for you guys over there over the past several months.
1: Well, when I came into game day, I think Jimmy's focus was is to really find an opportunity in the hobby to connect with the collector community. Um, he spoke with me about. C- community since the first time I ever talked to him and it was so important. And that was, that was one of the alerts. I had an opportunity. I kind of could have gone and did anything I wanted, um, I was kind of, I joked around that when I became available in the market, I was kind of like the top free agent, right? Um, Cause I could kind of go do whatever I wanted. But when I connected with Jimmy, like I thought there was a real passion there to find a way to do that. And that's what he empowered me to do. So when I came on, I came in with some marketing background and event experience. I've done event production, produced conventions, um, been involved with a bunch of them over the years. And uh, even going back to, I'm a DJ by trade and had a DJ background and did mobile events. I'd done over 1,500 wedding receptions. So the thing is, is like when you've done these events, you kind of understand flow and concept and all that. And that's what we really looked at. So we came in and I said, look, I said, I think there's an area of the marketplace that really could use some help. And that was in the trade night concept at the card shows because they essentially would just like, okay, there's a room open, feel free to go in there and trade guys. Well, there was no real... Vibe, vibe. There was no real feel to the room. There was no real elements that really felt like they could work. But every show producer wanted to charge somebody to have their name attached to it. Well, I wanted there to be value for that. Thought that was important. So if Tag, for example, sponsors a trade night and we're involved with that, I want to make sure that we give Tag value, right? And I think that that's incredibly important. And then two, end user. What does it feel like to go to these things? Are they fun? Or is it just an extension of your day? And yeah. I felt in some aspects it was an extension of your day. So we wanted to find ways to really vibrant it up, make it different, do those things.
0: Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned, you know, and you mentioned tag. And the reason I, I'm bringing that up now is because at the at the Del Mar show just a few weeks ago, I was there with tag. We were set up and we did not sponsor the trade night. Uh, I think you guys sponsored. I think game day sponsored the trade night but you managed to do something for tag that was really cool in the trade night. And I like, did you, why don't you explain what that was? And I'm not, you know, this isn't just about tag cause you could have done it for any company that was there, but you did do it with us. And just talk about like what you did, why you did it and, and, and you know, how it was received. Cause I mean,
1: we, we were very happy that you did it. I must say. Well, when we do, when we do an event with one of these event producers, I always look at how I can add value. I've always thought that. In fact, I've I've taught my employees over the years that any employee who's ever worked for me, I always say, How can you be plus? Like what where where can you elevate your experience and be better for the company and for the consumer or whoever it is? So whenever we do something, I always look for opportunities. And in this case, tag was a sponsor of the convention, but not the trade night. They were not solicited by us to be a contributor to prizes because they were already spending so much money with the show. But when they came and approached me and said, hey, we would love to give some stuff away. Of course, I'm going to take care of one of the sponsors for the show and make sure that they get showcased properly. So they went and grabbed some stuff. They brought some slabs. They brought them over. They handed them off to us as if, you know, hey, give them away. And in most of the trade nights, what happens? You get the, the, get the hit and then, you know, the guy sits there and reads off the names or just, you know, gives it away to one person. And then that's it. We found that that wasn't the best example to do your giveaways. So I actually killed raffle tickets. We don't do raffle tickets at our trade nights. Instead, I have interactive ways that I participate with the crowd and get the crowd to participate with either the vendor and or other people who are there attending trade night. It's a social thing. So I want it to be social. So what I did is uh, when they gave those to us, Um, I went up to do a giveaway and I did a giveaway and that was actually for our friends at Blaze sports cards um, who were gracious and gave us some really incredible stuff that night. And we were doing a giveaway for, for and at the end of the the giveaway for Blaze, I showed that tag had given me a bunch of slabs and told everybody we're going to be playing a game of tag and then we'll be coming around in just a little bit and playing the game and then left it at that. So I closed with that and the group from tag is standing there like, wait, what we're doing? What my team was going like, wait, what the union marketplace team was like, wait, what just happened? And everybody kind of you know, comes down to me and they're like, what are we doing? You didn't tell us about this. We had no idea. And I'm like, I just came up with this. And what we did is we created a fun way to give away those slabs to where we tied in a social media aspect for them, which then. Gave value to the show because the show got more social media mentions, gave value to tag as a sponsor because it was hedged around them. And then we got uh, talent sports cards as an influencer involved, and he did all the production and the video for it. And our team, the union marketplace team went around and played tag with the slabs. And it was a very fun, interactive thing. And it created a social media campaign, something that I told Tag that doing events in the future with, we will continue this concept that whenever we do something with Tag, we will play a game of Tag. And we'll continue to do that because that to me is unique to that experience. When you were at that trade night, you got to experience that. And it was fun and interactive. And the next trade night we do, I'm going to try to find something new and interactive to do again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was in the room. I don't, I don't think I was in the room for that game, but I will say that trade. What I liked about it was it was super bright in the room. It was a bright room, lots of light, and the vibe was good. It, it just had a, you know, there's music playing. People were having a couple of drinks. They were chilled. They had cards out. It was just, it, it felt. I don't know what it, I, I guess it felt like the way Steve Johnston brands a trade night and plans a trade night versus, like you said, just a room of tables and people putting their cards out. Obviously, the trade night concept is still for as far as the events after hours of card shows goes is relatively new, five years old or so, but it's taking off. And now it's evolving, similar to the way breaking evolved, group breaks evolved right. over time, right? They, they took 15 years to get to where they are today. Trade nights, I'm sure, will continue to evolve and if you're at the at the center of that, I think that's pretty cool. I can't wait to see what else you come up with. Going to go to you. a couple of comments now that are coming in uh, on the on the chat here. Ultimate pastime. That's our boy Mark right there. Says uh, Mark Neiman says All, game day always throws great trade nights. Oh, thank you, Mark. Always good to see you in the chat and when we do run into each other or on the show. Uh, Chris C., this is a bit off topic, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, since I think collectors would greatly benefit from mandatory print runs to know how much product is out there. Sealed Wax seems this year to be way up in production, especially Panini stuff. Chris, I don't think they will ever share. I mean, who knows with Fanatics coming in if they change that, but uh, you know, under current uh, management and leadership, I don't think they'll ever divulge print runs for all products. I just don't think that's going to happen. Anthony Scott says, when are you going to run the trade night in Chicago? Well, I think I don't know if he's talking about the spectacular or if he's talking about the national, but the national trade night that's already been claimed by Card Collector 2 and uh and Jimmy from Roadshow Sports Cards, they kind of have that under wraps. Uh, but um, is Anthony talking about the sport spectacular? I'm not sure that's a different show in Chicago.
1: So we will actually be partnering with uh X for their show, I believe, in March and producing the trade night, uh, for them at that, that event. So we will be doing another event. Now this will be our second time partnering with Ludd on a trade night. We did one here in Las Vegas and we will be coming back with one, um, uh, for them then. And so, yeah, so it, it's coming up. I believe it's March. I have to look at the calendar exactly. Cause we've got other shows coming up, but I believe it's in March. So we will be out in Chicago and hosting a trade night out there. So, uh, there's your answer.
0: All right, good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. There's one more topic. We're gonna we're we're running out of time here. There's one (laughs) more topic that I teased on the on the video description, and it's basically um populations versus comparables, pops versus comps. And um these are two metrics that the hobby uses to to assess value, assess scarcity, assess demand, cost, all these things for certain cards. And right now there's so much attention given to to both of them really but you had some thoughts on this and where it was kind of going to move to in the future is one more important than the other historically today and in the future how do they rank versus each other and what sort of insights do you have on
1: pops versus comps well my first take is is that and and this is I, i'll say this first and that is it's my belief that in 2 years we will talk about pop before we talk about the comp, it shows it'll be that prevalent in the marketplace, and it should be. Um, right now, the advice, the investment advice that I'm giving to people are more based around what the- this metric is. So, the uh, question that was asked earlier tells you even further how I get involved in the metric. On it is that. I actually think it's so important to really be aware of what your pop count is on what you are buying and what you have that that should actually be an investment game plan if you're buying now. And the reason I say that is because when you're buying right now, you need to be aware of how much of something actually exists to be out in the marketplace. We talked about the 20% in the market earlier of the Charizard. So I'm saying take cards that are numbered 50 or less, high grade. Those should be prioritized in your in your buying if you're buying from an investment standpoint, whether it is value investment or it is current buy-to-flip investment, right? If you are doing either of those things, you should be very conscious of whether now. This this isn't a new concept, but opening your mind to it on a regular basis, I think, is incredibly important, right? And then also being aware of when something is a, a numbered card that is. For example, uh one I can use, I we sold recently on one of our live streams on whatnot a Tristan Cassis 2020 Bowman Chrome purple that was number to 299. And it was graded an 85. Now you look at that and you say, oh well, that card it's graded an 8.5. 5 It's a purple. That's what people think. No, it was a pop one none higher because it happened to be that the purple from that year's cards do not grade very high there's something that happened in the process with the purple that are keeping those from grading very high
0: what was the total grade population though like it's a pop one at 8.5 was it the only one ever graded out of
1: 299 that is the only one that was in their grading system So, so not only were there none higher there were also none lower Right. So when you're looking at that, all of a sudden you're looking at a card that there isn't a comp for. You can't base that. It is the only one that exists. So finding those opportunities in the market, I think, are key. So I've been telling people, hey, buy the buy the silvers. You know, the first year silvers in Prism for both basketball and football. Buy those first years um, that are cards that are low pop, right? Cards that are less than 50 population, you should definitely be targeting. Two, if they're numbered and they're liquid players, that's also another one. Those are the two elements that you really should be looking at. But utilizing that pop report in your buying is going to make you sharp because that's going to help protect your investment. Because while the pop is low there, you know that's going to give you an ability to at least be in the minor group of people that have that card graded rather than being into a card that everybody has that at any one time a group could go and throw it down on the market, water the market down and drive the value of that card down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. I agree with, I agree with all that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up one of Chris's comments here, uh, which makes a lot of sense to me. He says, you know, I don't agree with comps. If one person sells something for 30% less than the last sale, it doesn't mean I have to do the same. And I, I mean, he's right about that. Somebody might need quick cash and it's on a, a platform that is tracked by the data services and it now becomes the latest comp and it's 30% discount. It's, you know, the the, the general public who, who, who researches these data points doesn't necessarily know what the specific circumstances were around that transaction, that disposition at that price. Another thing that I, another issue I have with comps is that if we're only ever willing to pay the last comp, prices will never move they'll just never move latest comp is the is the permanent price so you have to have a bit of you know i don't know if it's just some some uh some be a little bit brave to pay more than a comp or you know to be able to set a record on a card the other thing about comps that for me at least i put a lot more stock into them when they are for what i call a commodity card you know a card that's trading every day no problem to a, a card that isn't rare nor scarce um I'm going to I'm going to use the comps in my decision making to purchase or not th- to purchase or not purchase that item. Uh, it's going to weigh a lot more heavily than a card that you never see come up for auction or, or come available at a card show or anything like that. So I think comps have their place. But population, like you said, and we're, we're so f- far into the the grading era now that I, I don't listen I'm not gonna say most cards are graded but many cards are certainly graded mm-hmm. and now you kind of know you know especially for cards that are say five years uh old and and older the populations aren't going to spike significantly anymore that spike took place over the past 30 or so years so populations I've, I'm with you I'm with you Steve I think population is much more important moving forward than the overall comp uh, especially when it comes to to the rare cards, because in many cases, there
1: is not a comp for you to hang your hat on anyway. Well, and I think that what you're touching on when we talk about the comp too, uh, one element that most of us forget about, most of us miss is also availability in the market. I don't know how many times someone will come and they'll say, well, the last one of these sold. And I go, cool. How many are available to buy today? Even yeah. at auction, how many are available right now? And you go and look and there's none available. You tell me that it's worth the last comp. When we're talking about this stuff, the comps should just be a base guideline like you're utilizing. And I think your example of utilization of that should be the industry standard. If it is a card that is in high population that trades on a regular per- Basis should probably go ahead and do that on a, you know a regular basis. And I'll use the flip side of that. What happens with the card that sells way over comps? Because I will tell you that after Joe Burrow went to the Super Bowl, we were in Atlanta at Culture Collusion. We had a NT booklet, a football relic number ten of ten, Justin Herbert uh, auto right. That card I sold. On the Whatnot platform from that show for $20,000. That comp does not exist. The Joe Burrow's highest comp for that same card, that same booklet, was $7,900 just after the Super Bowl, right? Sometimes availability of an item in the market, that is the only. National Treasures, Football Relic Booklet, number 10 of 10 out there in the marketplace to exist. That comp happens, but it's not available for your data collection. So a lot of times I think that that's very speculative. I think the problem we're running into right now is that the old guard was so stuck on how we followed Beckett monthly that we believe that the price is, there's a price point in the market and the price is exactly that. And the old guard tries to live and die by that rather than being much aware of what the marketplace holds. And I think having an understanding of how much is out there to actually buy, what are you selling against? What is your marketplace selling against? I think that's a really key ingredient that most people are missing.
0: Yeah, no, I for sure. When we talk about the, you know. The Jordan 86 Fleer is a good one to use for this example. There's 320 or so PSA 10s. I recently heard another one was 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 uh, awarded a 10. That's the population. But a significant yep. portion of those are likely locked away, especially today now that we're back in that 180 to 200k range for them. A lot of those are locked away. They're not going to see the light of day, so they're not available. Yes, the population is 320, but what I what the amount of cards that are like f- turning over that are going to be available like what 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 percent is actually turned over in a year i call that the float that's what's actually available and the float is going to be a percentage of the population so uh, i don't know that that's the language i'm using for it mm-hmm. and it's you know it's like the 52 tops mickey mantle there's a lot of those in in graded slabs it's not a rare card you can find one anytime, any but even the authentics even the the psa ones sell for like 15,000 plus for a mangled version of the card missing, you know, with paper loss on the front around the border where the tape was. And it's, it's, there are some cards where population doesn't even matter because it's, 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 you know, well, we're talking about one, if not the most iconic card ever when I mentioned that one, but you know, again, there's nuance to all this pops and comps, both, both important. But uh, but neither one the end all be all especially because it's incomplete information as far as well both are incomplete comps are incomplete no matter yep. what source you're using and pop is incomplete because of of crack and resla- resubmit so a um, couple of great comments coming in I'm gonna go to this one here from uh, an unidentified Facebook user so I'm gonna read this uh, Stevie says that comp argument only works on private sale in an auction. In an auction that's legit and without fake bids, then that's what the value, the value is basically what people are willing to pay. But in a private sale, you could get someone that needs cash. So a discount is there or a buy it now for cheap as well. Exa- that's exactly true. I don't, I don't know what argument only works in a private sale. Uh, maybe it's just the, the, the comp argument will only work as a negotiating tactic. Comps are good. I think comps, it really depends if, it's, if they benefit the buyer or the seller more. But, uh, but this particular comment, um, I have no issue with it. It all makes
1: good sense to me. Does it make sense to you before I move on to the next one? No, I think it does. And I, I think that that point is there. The only thing that I will tell you is, is that some people will bid in an auction based on what they are seeing a relative comp to be. And I do think it's important to understand that that's always the person that says, why well, I just got outbid. The last comp was this. I hear that all the time. I just got outbid. The last comp was this, right. that person is just so stuck on what the comp was. And I'll jokingly say, like people would come in all the time. I remember people coming in the store and saying, well, this is worth X. Well, no, it's not. I can show you that it's sold recently for X, Y, and Z. It's closer to this. However, watch this. And I did it one day. I took a little trinket off the counter, took a picture of it, posted it on eBay, put $10,000 on it and said, do you want to buy that? I'm only asking three bucks in store, but someone has it up for $10,000 to show and illustrate to that person that we're still in. And I told you this, the wild west of this industry in the hobby of collectibles, we're really still in kind of like the dinosaur era where a lot of this has not developed itself enough to really be honed in to say, these are the standards. We're going by a baseline, not a guideline.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I agree for sure, for sure. Diamond Pocklington says, when I buy high-end cards, it has to be the best pop personally. So I think he means the highest grade. That's a nice position to be in. I always pick, you know, where I can afford and then that'll be all then I'll I'll try and find the nicest copy for that grade that's in my budget for that card, which is interesting because it may not be my overall what I can afford, but I have a budget for that specific card and then have other budget within what I can afford for other cards because I never only want one card, at a time uh let's see what else oh and chris makes it you know very just a simple but true comment pop counts are inaccurate because they don't count if someone sends in the same card to psa like three times many cards are resubbed to get tens yeah that's what i was saying before the pop and resub game which i mean i used to think that the and i've said it on the show probably two years ago i thought they were probably overinflated the pop counts by i don't know three to eight percent now i think it's like 30 based on what i'm learning about just how much you know crack and resub right. actually goes on. Okay.
1: You know where that you know where that matters? That matters in the low pop cards. Because when it is a low pop, which is my advice in telling you that cards that are numbered to 25 or 10 or that are just not ever going to generate a lot of pop count, that's exactly where that's going to matter and that that's where you're going to be on a winning side.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, well, well said and Good insights throughout, man. We're at an hour 40. We're going to end this episode. Uh, I have another show starting in five minutes after hours with my buddy, Sam Genova, who is with me at the expo. And we're just going to, I got, I got my stacks of cards here that I'm going to share and, uh, and have a chill out uh, after hours episode. Uh, start. We'll start that on the channel here in about five minutes. Sam, if you are watching you might want you can head into the studio, and I'll see you over there in a few minutes. But uh, Steve, listen, I think we're I think we are. As I just said, we are going to wrap up. Man, great insights. Uh, you're a great guest, and we'll definitely welcome back again. We'll have you in the future uh, on the show again. So I want to thank you for, for joining us, and thank you for the chat. For all really great. Con- I gotta say, I, I watch my share of content, Steve. Nobody has a chat like Sports Cards Live does, where they the uh, just. The quality of comments and the thoughtfulness behind them, I don't see it anywhere else. And like I said, I you know, I watch a lot. I'm talking about live streams. I see a lot of great comments on on, on a lot of channels afterwards. But as far as during a live, uh, nobody beats uh, Sports Cards Live's chat. So thanks, everybody, for that. I see a lot of thank yous coming through right now. Stooks, see, you see someone new every day. Thank you for that, Stooks, and great to have you. Welcome to Sports Cards Live. Diamond. Great to see you, Mr. Pocklington. Brendan Ryan, Mark Santucci will be there for after hours. Adam Holgate, really
1: appreciate that. Steve, thanks again for joining. Final word to you, and then we'll end this. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It's been uh, been awesome, and uh, you know, you're right. You have a very educated chat, and I think that that's incredibly important uh, to have in this this hobby. People that are discussing the hobby in a positive facet, and you're doing a great job with the journey. So keep it up. Thanks, I appreciate that, Steve. Thanks again. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Anthony
0: Scott. See your comments there, everybody. We will be back. Give us a couple of minutes. The link is on the channel. You'll see it there for After Hours with Sam. We'll be back. I can go fill my water and uh, we'll keep on going for tonight on the channel. So, Steve, thanks again, everybody. Hope to see you uh, shortly after. Purple Haze, I see you there. Thank you so much, Anthony Scott. Thank you so much. This episode is over.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old.